I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1283. Hebrews chapter 10. Last year, a young pastor in California, a pastor named Andrew Steckline, took his own life and uh, seemingly promised, a lot of promise, uh, young family. In the aftermath of that tragedy, another pastor named Jared Wilson started a nonprofit suicide prevention ministry called Anthem of Hope. And about three weeks ago, Jared Wilson, the one who started the suicide prevention ministry, took his own life. I have found those two stories to be particularly unsettling because while I did not know either of those pastors, I have a lot in common with them, same age, young families, and so on. That struggle is not new. History is filled with pastors and Christians who wrestled with depression that would not lift. Martin Luther wrote of of a particularly dark time, for more than a week I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. That was 10 years after he had nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg. John Bunyan, the author of the classic Pilgrim's Progress, the most widely published English book outside of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest English-speaking preacher of all time. John Newton, the author of hymns like Amazing Grace, all these and many, many more have journeyed through the dark night of the soul. Even in the Bible, there are examples of those who wrestled with this darkness. David speaks often in the Psalms of being downcast and unsettled. Job wishes that he had never been born. The prophet Elijah at one point asked God that he would let him die because he felt so hopeless and alone and overcome with anguish. There is something particularly weighty about being called to minister to others that makes one susceptible to the darkness of doubt and hopelessness. This struggle is not new. What is troubling, however, is the appearance of a trend in which more and more pastors are being so overcome by that despair that they leave the ministry altogether or worse. So, over the next few weeks... I want us to have a heart-to-heart as a church family for the good of our church and for the glory of God. I'm convinced we need to humbly reassess what it means to be a healthy church, what the Bible says we are to be and to do as the body of Christ. And I want us to begin this morning in Hebrews 10. We're going to begin in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for how you, Lord Jesus, shed your blood for your people, for your church, to reconcile us to you and to one another, and... uh, You, Lord Jesus, are the true vine. We are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, I pray over this morning and over these next few weeks as we try to 
evaluate and reassess what it means to be a healthy branch, what it means to be a healthy Christian and a healthy church. God, that you would humble us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would not be deaf to what you would say, that we would not pridefully think that we already have all the answers, but that we would sit at your feet and listen. God, help us to do that, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now these two verses are typically the place someone will go when they need a proof text that basically says, go to church. Someone says, why do you need to go to church? Because Hebrews 10 says, let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Don't forsake the assembling together, that sort of thing. There is so much more to these two verses than simply go to church. So I want to let this passage this morning point us to five needs that we have as believers and as the church of Jesus Christ. Five needs. First, we need a new mindset. We need a new mindset. The primary exhortation in this sentence is, let us consider. Now, what's the difference between a command and an exhortation? A command says, consider. An exhortation says, let us consider. They're both imperative, but one of them is an encouragement and one of them is a command. This is an exhortation. Let us consider. Now, of course, we're not meant to stop at considering, but that's where we need to start. And consider is just a fancier way of saying think. Let us think about blank. We have to do this with our boys sometimes. We have to say, think about what you're doing or, or think about what you're saying. Think about how this is going to affect the other person. Think about how they might feel. Kids just do things before they think about the consequences or how it's going to affect others or whether it's the most effective or wisest course of action. There are some things that you can do, but that may be very unwise to do. And adults are often no different. It is just as easy for us to do things without thinking. And if someone asks, why do you do that? We say, I don't know, never thought about it. That's just the way we've always done it. But the Bible says, think about it. Let us consider. That's where we need to start. We need a new mindset. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine a few weeks ago, and he used an analogy that I found so helpful. He said, sometimes it feels like I'm trying to chop down a tree, but I'm using the blunt side of the axe. He's, he's trying to keep all these programs running. He's trying to fulfill all these responsibilities. He's trying to meet everyone's expectations, but he's wondering, am I actually doing what God requires of me? Are we actually doing what God requires of us? The problem is everyone at his church is used to the pastor swinging the axe that way. That's the only way they've ever seen a pastor swing the axe. So they're all cheering him on. They love how faithful he is to just keep swinging that axe. They, they, every time he asks, why are, why are we doing it this way? They say, how else would you swing an axe? That's the only way we've ever swung an axe. And anytime he has the audacity to suggest flipping the axe around, he's met with resistance. We don't want that kind of change. Just keep swinging the axe. Just stay faithful. Is it any wonder that no pastor has ever stayed at that church more than just a few years? No. It's a problem that exists in many churches. According to Lifeway Research, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
the median tenure of full-time pastors is six years. That number has stayed consistent for about a decade. Six years. Why is that number so low? Because six years is not a long time in the grand scheme of things. The old joke is a pastor had to move every few years because he used up all his sermons, right? You know, he had a stockpile of about five or six years. Some of it might be two or three years. And once he used them all up, he had to, you know, go somewhere else. God had to call him away to somewhere else so that he could go somewhere where all those sermons would be new. I have no doubt there are some pastors like that. But when you look at the data, when you look at the research, what stands out is there seem to be a lot more pastor-chewing churches than church-hopping pastors. When you look at the research, there are two primary reasons that stand out for low pastoral tenure. The first reason, and the most common one, is conflict. Simply put, there are some people who do not want to be pastored by the same person for too long. Why? Well, because... The, the longer a pastor stays, the more influence he's likely to have. And if you're someone who craves influence and control, then you don't want to give that up. So what's the solution? After he's been there too long, you just run him off. And then you get somebody else and you start over. You make his life miserable. You secretly or not so secretly stir up trouble or division. You do everything in your power to just make him throw up his hands and walk away. Again, this is not new. Third John mentions a man named Diotrephes who, he says, likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. The spirit of Diotrephes is alive in many churches today. So the first reason for low pastoral tenure is conflict. The second is burnout. Burnout is what happens when you keep whacking the tree with the wrong side of the axe. Often while everyone's cheering you on, just stay, just keep, keep, keep plugging, keep trying, be, keep being faithful. Lifeway Research, again, surveyed over 700 former pastors who left the pastorate. They didn't just... Go to another church, they, they stopped pastoring. They went and got a job selling insurance or working at a supermarket or whatever. And they found some common threads among those men. 88% said their previous church had no sabbatical plan for the pastor. No plan for how they were going to give him some extended time away to recharge and refresh uh, and spend time with his family or go on vacation. 88%. 78% reported having no documentation of the church's expectations of their pastor. They're just guessing. What is it that y'all want me to do? Well, they don't know. 78% of them. 62% reported feeling isolated, like they did not have any real friends in their church. 54% said they had experienced a significant personal attack from someone within the church. In other words, over half of the people they interviewed who didn't just go to a different church, but they, they left the pastor altogether, over half of them said, in my previous church, there was a significant personal attack, not from outside, but from someone within the church, and nobody stood by my side. Those are not isolated problems. That's a, that's a toxic pattern that's playing out in far too many churches. Something has got to change. What we need to do is not... Just keep passing the axe to the next person, or, nor is it to just cheer on the person swinging the axe. We need to flip it around. We need to start swinging with the sharp side of the axe. We need a new mindset. The second need we have, we need a kick in the pants, okay? We need a kick in the pants. Now, I know there are more tactful ways that I could have articulated that point, but I think that gets it across the most clearly, I could have said we need, you know, some stimulation or something like that, but that, that gets it across. We need a kick in the pants. What is it that we need to consider? 
We need to consider, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another. The NIV translates that phrase, how we may spur one another on. How we may spur one another on. I like that translation because it carries this mental picture of kicking a horse in the side to make it run. That's the idea behind this verb, to stir up one another. It means, as the King James translates it, to provoke one another. Let us consider how to provoke one another. The passage is telling us how to think, to, telling us to think about how to provoke one another, how to kick one another in the pants. Now, there's a specific aim for this kicking in the pants. We're not told to provoke others to anger or bitterness or jealousy or gossip or any other kind of sin. There's a good godly purpose to this spurring one another on. But before we get to that, let's just marinate for a moment on what it means that we need to think about how to stir up one another. The New Testament has many, many of these one another commands. And anytime you see a command that's one another, honor one another, love one another, stir up one another, it's helpful to think of that command from two angles. So if we take how to stir up one another, that means first I'm commanded to stir up others. I'm commanded to stir up others. I need to think about how I can provoke others in the church to holiness. But the other angle is I'm also commanded to be stirred up by others. I know that I need others to stir me up. I need others to spur me on. I need others to kick me in the pants, to provoke me to holiness. That's what it means to stir up one another. It means that I need to provoke others and I need to be provoked by others. And that's true of everyone. Holiness is not something that arises naturally. It's a work the Spirit does through believers provoking one another. And the command is not given only to pastors or church leaders. It's given to all believers. The command is not, pastors, think about how you can motivate your people to serve in the church. Think about how you can motivate your people to live in holiness and unity. The command is, let us consider how to stir up one another. There's a mutuality here. So when I say that we need a kick in the pants, there's an emphasis on the we. No one's excluded from this. We all need to provoke and to be provoked, to spur on others and to be spurred on. This third point is really important, however. We need biblical goals. We need biblical goals. If we stopped there, if we stopped with, let us consider how to stir up one another, well, you might get the impression that we all just need to be mean to each other. Um, we need to agitate, be harsh. Say what you're thinking and don't worry about whose feelings you hurt. You know, quit trying to be politically correct, all that stuff we hear on TV. But it's really important that we don't stop there. To what end, to what goals are we commanded to think about how we might stir up one another? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I find that to be such a fascinating combination of words. Spur one another on, kick one another in the pants, provoke one another to love and good works. We need to be sure that we have biblical goals to which we're spurring one another on. Last Sunday evening, Ben Noble said something in his revival sermon that I've been thinking about all week. This is not a, a verbatim quote. I just want to read you what I wrote down based on what he said. 
The supreme purpose of the church is to display the wisdom of God for the glory of God. When you work for some other vision, for some other goals, you will lose heart. Then you will inevitably lower your understanding of the church's purpose to one that you can easily measure and fulfill. So here's a more simple way we could say that. If we lower our understanding of the church's vision to something that's lower than the glory of God, then inevitably what we're going to do is we're going to come up with all these other goals that we can easily measure, like attendance. How many programs do we have? How many events do we put on every year? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of that stuff. The problem is when we make those things a substitute for what the Bible says we're supposed to do, which is to think about how we can spur one another on to love and good works. And love and good works are not as easily measurable as attendance and programs and events. So what we typically do is we typically fixate on the things that we can measure, the things that we feel like we accomplish something rather than the things that are a whole lot harder. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul, if my church has awesome programs and events but has not love, we are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. There are many ways that love and good works can express themselves, but we need to make sure that our bottom line goals are what the Bible commands them to be, which is love and good works. And that leads us to number four, we need biblical guidelines. We need biblical guidelines. It would be easy for us to scratch our heads and say, okay, how are we practically supposed to do that? How in the world are we supposed to provoke one another to love? As the song says, I can't make you love me if you don't. Or how do we practically provoke one another to love and good works? This is a question that every pastor wishes there was an answer to. And if you go to any kind of Christian bookstore, which they don't exist much very, as, as often, but if you go online and look uh, for Christian leadership books, you're going to find about a million books that try to answer this question of how can you provoke others to love and good works? Every church I've ever known of, no matter how big or small, struggles with getting enough people to volunteer for all their various ministries. But the text itself gives the answer. It's not a question about which we have to wonder. It answers the question. Now that does not mean that it's going to be easy, but the answer is here for anyone to see. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now the grammar is really important here. In the past, there were some translations that took that phrase, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and made it out as if it were a separate command. But I, I, I diagrammed these two verses for us to see because it's helpful to see how the grammar works. So here's a diagram of this sentence, verses 24 and 25. The primary command is, let us consider. That's what we're being told to do. Let us consider. How to stir up one another explains what it is that we are to consider. To love and good works explains the goal to which we stir up one another. Then, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That phrase, those are not separate commands. They modify, they explain how 
we stir up one another to love and good works. We do not provoke one another through harshness or domineering. We do it through regularly assembling as Christ's body when we encourage one another through prayer and fellowship and Bible study and corporate praise. So when I said at the beginning that there's more to this verse than simply go to church, that is a pretty big part of it, though. It's not just about going to a place, but it's about being around a people. The church is not the building. The church is the people who meet together to worship Jesus and to call one another to holiness and love and service. So yes, coming to this building does not mean you're going to church, but coming to these people means that you're going to church. And when we do that, we worship Jesus we, we encourage one another, we call one another to holiness and love and service, which means that this is a process that will require patience. Each of us needs to be formed week after week into the likeness of Jesus. And you never, ever reach a point. You never, ever reach a point, not after five years or ten years or fifty years or a hundred years, where you say, okay... I'm, I'm good now. I'm, I'm sufficiently sanctified. This is a lifelong process. No one is exempt, and there are no shortcuts. The last truth balances that fourth one. We need urgency. We need urgency. The sentence ends with that phrase, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in the ESV, it capitalizes the D in day, because that day refers to the day of Christ's return when He will judge the living and the dead. We live in between this day and that day. And none of us knows when that day will come. So yes, we need patience with ourselves and with one another, but we don't need to confuse patience with laziness or compromise. We cannot wait until next year or next month or even tomorrow. We need to consider today how to stir up one another to love and good works because there's coming a day when it will be too late. That's what this sermon series is all about. It's about trying to provoke us to love and service for the good of our church and for the glory of Jesus so I want to give you three practical steps that we can all take today. Not tomorrow, not Wednesday, not next week, but today. And I want to encourage you to do this today. Number one, think about how you can love others and serve Think about how you can love others and serve. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, we're not called to give our life as a ransom for many, but we are called to follow Him in service. And if somebody thinks they're too good to serve, then they think they're better than Jesus. So none of us are here simply to have our needs met or to be served by others. We are all here to love one another and to serve. But the, the whole point of saying think about it means that we can't expect opportunities to fall into our lap. We, we don't have to sit around and wait for someone to ask. There are some people who they'll serve, but only if 
the pastor or somebody comes and, and asks them to. The whole point of this is don't wait. Think about ways that you can love and serve. And by all means, if you want to ask permission or if you want to you know, say, do you think this would be helpful or is someone already doing that? By all means. But don't, don't wait for me or anybody else to come to you and say, here's how we need you to serve. Just do it. Number two, think about how you can spur others on. Now, it's important that we start with step one. All of these steps need to go in order. If we jump straight to number two, then we're going to be kind of like the guy that Jesus talked about who goes around pointing out the speck in other people's eyes while he's running around with a two-by-four hanging out of his own eye. So we need to start with how can we love others and serve? And then once we're working on that, then we can think about how can I spur others on? It's not about who can I police, you know, who can I go and chastise? It's who can I encourage? Who can I mentor? Who can I challenge? We need to think about those things. Again, don't wait for the opportunities to arise. We have to make the opportunities, which is why we're told to consider how to do it. And then number three, as the old Nike slogan says, just do it. Just do it. We need to start by thinking. We don't need to just do something. We need to think about it. But we don't need to stop at thinking. Because every one of us could, could sit down and, with a notebook and write down maybe a hundred ideas of things we could do. But all those ideas are going to be worthless if we don't do them. Nobody's going to be helped if all we do is think about how we can serve them or love them or encourage them or mentor them or spur them on. No one's going to be helped if all these things just stay in our head. So we need to start by thinking, but we don't need to stop there. Now, I didn't put this on the slide, but there's one other step that goes before all of these other three I said earlier that this command is given to all believers. Nobody is exempt. But I also want to be clear that it's given only to believers. The writer of Hebrews is not telling us how to be reconciled to God. He's telling us how to live after we've already been reconciled to Him. I want you to glance back at the context in which this command is given. Look back at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean um, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The way this whole paragraph works is it begins with this truth that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then the author of Hebrews gives a number of commands on the basis of that truth. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, etc. 
that command then that we've been focusing on today, to think about how to stir up one another to love and good works, that command is not given to people who need to be accepted into God's presence. It's given to people who are already there, who already have access to God through the way opened by Jesus. And so there's a step that goes before all these, which is to make sure that you really are a follower of Christ, that you really have been accepted into His presence by faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we need to start this morning, by trusting in Him and surrendering to Him as Lord. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And uh, I, I say this in humility, uh, and I say this because it's true of me that if you are not convicted right now, then something's wrong. If you're not convicted right now, then either one or two things is true. Either you didn't listen, or the Holy Spirit's not within you. Because if the Holy Spirit's within you, and you heard everything that we heard today, then you ought to be convicted. And God disciplines those He loves. And so I, I simply want to encourage you if, you, if you're not convicted, then Lord willing, this sermon is going to be on the website. Go back and listen again. Or it may be that you need to do business with God. Maybe that you need to go listen to it. And then if you're still not convicted, do business with God then. But the Word of God, this is not, this is not Matt. Um, this is God. He's the one who speaks in this Word. And so we all have to submit to it. We all have to humble ourselves under it. And so I, I pray that you will listen uh, and heed God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for how You discipline those You love. Lord, I pray that You would um, indeed, by Your Spirit, convict those who are Your own. And Lord, if there's anyone here who is not your own, who does not yet belong to you, even if they've been pretending to belong to you for some time, Lord, that you would convict them and draw them to yourself. And God, I pray for every one of us here today that we would not harden our heart, that we would not put up any shield or puff our chest up in your presence but that we would bow our knees before you and humble ourselves before you and uh, plead with you to help us to walk in greater faithfulness to you and to one another. Lord, I pray that you would move and work through your word, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.